Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. Thanks for listening in again this week. And as always, a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. This is, of course, episode 46. And so as we approach episode 50, I'm thinking about something we can do to celebrate the 50th episode and, and maybe how we can expand the listening audience so I'm kind of thinking of some sort of fun contest or, you know, something like that. So stay tuned for that. I've got the entire production team working round the clock on some ideas. To be clear, I am the entire production team, so it's just me, okay? But uh, I'll have more details next week, but stay tuned for that. Your listening and following the podcast, of course, is always appreciated. And if you enjoy the podcast, please feel free to spread the word on social media or with your friends and colleagues. I would really appreciate that. Uh, today, my guest is Dr. Tina Bogren. Tina and I explore the important topic of self-care for educators. Tina is incredibly passionate, and her expertise and wisdom is going to be obvious to you as you listen. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to talk briefly about a question that came up several times this past week in some of the trainings I was conducting. And that was the question, Tom, should we intentionally use a variety of assessment methods? So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My interview with Tina Bogren is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I'm going to open this week with a personal story about regret. How I came to know that prolonged negative thinking is incredibly effective in all the wrong ways, and how sometimes the worst moments in our lives can actually be fuel for us for long-term success. I was an athlete growing up, and a pretty decent athlete at that. Longtime listeners will recall during my segment on Father Phil, my high school basketball coach last spring, you know, my description of some of my exploits as an athlete. You know, growing up, especially as I hit my teen years, I had a singular focus to earn a college scholarship and become a professional athlete. And that all started in November of 1980. In November of 1980, my sister and her then-husband took me to see the University of California, Berkeley, play Stanford University in their annual rivalry football game that took place every season. The Cal-Stanford game, also known simply as the big game, was a spectacle unlike anything I had ever seen before. My sister's ex-husband played at Cal in the early 1970s, and he went down every other year. When the game was in Berkeley, he'd go down to watch the games. Now, growing up in Vancouver, we, of course, had three major professional sports franchises. We had, at the time, we had the Vancouver Canucks of the NHL, we had the BC Lions of the Canadian Football League, and we had the Vancouver Whitecaps of the then North American Soccer League. Now, I had attended multiple games of all three teams, but United States college football? That was something I'd never experienced live before in my life. And sports back then was not as prevalent on TV as it is now. I mean, we'd get one, maybe two college football games on TV. And of course, I would see the crowds on TV, but with a 13-inch screen and low definition, it wasn't exactly easy to soak up like it is now. So when we arrived at Memorial Stadium at Cal on November 22nd, 1980, I was hooked now, before I go any further, no, I did not attend the Cal-Stanford game with the play where Cal scored while the Stanford band was on the field. That was 1982, so I was just two years too early. But I did in 1980 get to see John Elway play, which was kind of cool. Now, to make a long story short, the spectacle that surrounded the game, the Berkeley campus, all of it, the deafening noise, 60,000 people, I thought to myself in that moment, 
and that was five days before my 13th birthday, I thought to myself in that moment, this is what I want to do. I want to play sports at a U.S. college when I graduate from high school. So during the next five years, I was ridiculously focused on becoming the best athlete I could become in every sport I played. I wanted to have as many options as possible. At the time, I thought baseball was going to be the sport because I was a really good baseball player, specifically a pitcher. Now, I played basketball, and I love playing basketball. I played soccer. I played football. But baseball was my absolute favorite. So as I moved through my high school years, I started to really focus in and zero in on baseball as maybe my ticket to go to college. During my senior year of high school, I actually quit football in hopes of spending more time training for baseball. You know, training then wasn't what it is today, but I knew I had to get stronger. So I thought I could train in the fall, play the basketball season, and then get ready to crush my baseball season in the spring. The problem was in my high school that no one else on my high school football team could really play quarterback. Now, I got my throwing ability from baseball and had a pretty good arm. And during early season training, because I had quit the team, uh, it became very obvious they were struggling. So the coaches did the hard sell on me to return. And so I did. You know, I was a good quarterback. But remember, I'm talking about a good Canadian high school quarterback in the 1980s. So let's keep it all in perspective, people. Okay. This is no flex whatsoever. Big fish, extremely small pond. But the one thing I did excel at was kicking. This came from my days as a soccer goalie. I could punt and I could kick field goals. So to make a long story short, I go through my my years of high school and I end up earning a football scholarship to Boise State University as a punter. Now, when I got to my first preseason camp and I watched the quarterbacks, any ego I had about my quarterbacking skills was annihilated during that first practice in Boise. To say I wasn't good enough would be generous. But I had done it. I was so excited and I was so proud of myself. I had earned a scholarship, exactly what I said I wanted to do five years earlier. My career at Boise State was okay. And this is where the story of negative thinking picks up. I played four years and my stats were okay. But the most frustrating part of my college experience was the difference between what I could do in practice and what I could do in a game. I'm a November baby. So I was still 17 when I played my freshman year. And my very first game was in Salt Lake City against the University of Utah. You know, a blocked punt, a failed fake punt throw on my part, and 35,000 Utah fans going nuts, and I had a real honest-to-goodness welcome to college football. Needless to say, it was a long bus ride back to Boise. The difference between practice and games was my mindset. In practice, I was loose. In games, I was mentally tight. For the first time in my entire athletic career, I was playing scared. And I didn't even play that much. And maybe that was the issue that when I was on the field, it was so monumental, right? I mean, if I had, say, five punts a game and roughly, you know, seven seconds per play, that means I was on the field for a total of 35 seconds of a 60-minute game, give or take. The pressure definitely got to me. And, And I didn't know how to shake it. My mind was fixated on not failing, on not making a mistake. So guess what started to happen? Now, it's not as if I was 
awful all the time, but I was definitely not fulfilling my potential and I was just really, really inconsistent. Every time I stepped on the field, I had the overwhelming fear of failure, which made me physically uncomfortable and made my legs feel heavy, which is not exactly a good thing when you're about to kick a football. Now, I remember a few NFL scouts coming to watch our practices during my senior year. I mean, they come every year to watch all of the seniors. And I remember two scouts were watching me as I warmed up before practice one day. And while I was on a quick break during my warm-up, they both said to me, basically, you have NFL talent, no doubt, but you need to start doing it consistently in the games. I was both ecstatic and, and devastated, you know, ecstatic because somebody just told me, two, two people had just told me that I had the potential to be an NFL player. But I was devastated because I didn't really know what to do to fix that. I almost would have rather been told I wasn't good enough to be told I was, but that I was underperforming in the games, which I knew better than anyone. That was a gut punch. Now, miraculously, following my senior year, I was drafted into the Canadian Football League by the Ottawa Rough Riders, and I played during the 1989 season. But my fragile mind followed me to the, to the CFL, and I was the same inconsistent player I'd been in college. I was 21 in 1989, that season, and everything was coming to a head. The pressure was mounting, and all I could think about was minimizing the damage. Again, not exactly the mindset you need for peak performance. I know I'm going to mess it up, I would think. I just hope I don't mess it up too bad. So here I was, having achieved everything I'd ever wanted to achieve, and I was coming up so small in the moment. As an athlete, it was torture, because I had no idea how to get myself out of it. And I know maturity, or immaturity to be exact, was a big factor too. But the biggest factor in all of it is I had spent the last five years in prolonged negative thinking, college and then my one year in the Canadian Football League. It all came to a head in August of 1989, when I'd had a particularly poor game. The morning after the game, as my clock radio woke me up, remember, no phones back then, people, I heard one of the most opinionated and prominent Ottawa sportscasters ripping me on the radio talking about how awful I was for what felt like an eternity. It was probably 30 to 60 seconds, but it felt like forever. Not more than a minute, five minutes after I woke up, I'm listening to myself being ripped on the radio. I was embarrassed. I was humiliated. And I honestly couldn't wait for the season to be over. I finished the season, I went back to school in Boise, because I'd taken the semester off to play football, and I returned to training camp in 1990. Now, our team had gone through a major roster overhaul between the 1989 and 1990 season. We were 4-14 during the 89 season, and it was clear our team wasn't good enough. To make a long story short, in the summer during training camp in 1990, I was released from my contract. Rather than waiting to catch on with a team, I went back to Boise to do my practice teaching and then get on with my teaching career. And just like that, I'd walked away from the dream I'd had 
I basically spent 10 full years trying to achieve. 1980, the dream was sparked. 1990, the dream was over. And to this day, I still carry a tremendous amount of regret. Now, most days it isn't at the forefront of my mind, but it's still there and it eats at me. I'm a little embarrassed by it. I'm a lot disappointed in myself. And I wish I had taken the opportunity or had the opportunity to go back. Now, look, I'm over it. It doesn't sound like it, Tom, I know. (laughs) I am over it. But it is a major source of regret in my life. That experience proved to me that prolonged negative thinking is incredibly effective. That whatever we negatively fixate on, whatever we negatively put our minds to, is going to happen, especially if our energy is disproportionately fixed on the potential negative outcomes. All I could think about during my football days was not failing, and that is exactly what happened. I mean, maybe the universe didn't hear me clearly. You know, I said not failing, okay? I did think about going back a couple of years later, but by then I was into my teaching career. And, and remember, we're talking about the Canadian Football League here. It, it wasn't like I was looking at a huge pay discrepancy. In fact, my rookie salary in the Canadian Football League was lower than my salary as a first-year teacher. So even financially, if I would have gone back to play, I would have taken a hit. Not exactly the glamorous life of pro sports, right? But I did still think about going back. But I never did. And while I still live with that regret, that experience has also driven me ever since. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced that level of regret, or maybe you've experienced something worse, but it is an awful thing to live with. And I vowed to myself, years after walking away from my football career, that I would never, ever repeat that. Once was a life lesson. Twice would be excruciating. So ever since then, I've had this relentless pursuit of success throughout my 30 years in education. When I contemplated resigning from my central office position during the 2010-2011 school year to pursue a full-time career as a speaker, author, and a consultant, the fear of failure and the fear of regret were at odds. And honestly, it wasn't a fair fight. Now, I, look, I'm not saying it was an easy decision, you know, I had a family to look after, but Honestly, the fear of regret, you know, won in a landslide. As I realized that on my deathbed, the wondering about whether I could have done it would have been too much for me to take. I couldn't live with myself if I didn't exhaust all possibilities. You see, the, re- the regret about my football career is not that I didn't have a long career. The regret is that I pulled the plug too soon without exhausting all possibilities. I could live with a limited career if I had exhausted all avenues. My regret was cutting bait and bailing on something I had been obsessed with for over a decade. So take it from me. You don't want to live with regret. Once I can deal with, but twice, no way. If there's something that you want to accomplish, go for it. Don't wait. Do it now or do it at the next opportunity you have. One of the worst sentences we could ever utter about our own lives is, I wonder what would have happened if. That I was not prepared to live with twice in my life. 
you're not going to fail. You're either going to succeed or you're going to be a better person because of it. I have a ton of regret about my football career, but I also know I'm a better person because it happened. I could have, I suppose, gotten better through other circumstances, you know, but we're only ever living one life at a time. The fear of regret to this day still consumes me. Maybe sometimes a little too much, but most of the time just enough to fuel me to find the next opportunity. Look, I'm not trying to come off as the most successful person ever, and I know there are a lot of people who are more successful than me, and there are some people who are less successful than me. I mean, we're, we're all somewhere in the middle. What I am trying to say is don't flinch. Do it. Whatever it is you are contemplating, now is the time to take a small, medium, or even large step toward it. Whenever the what if I fail question comes to your mind, and it will, make sure you add a second question. What if I never try? The fear of taking that step should at least be paired with the fear of not doing it. I mean, ironically, playing it safe comes with risks too. Playing it safe also has consequences. But unlike an exhaustive failure that you will learn to live with, the regret of not trying will eat at you and leave an empty space that at some point will never be able to be filled. Take it from me. The people who criticize your risk-taking are also the ones that secretly wish they had the stones to do what you're doing. So go for it. I'm not saying be reckless, but I am saying now is the time to act on that thing that has been lingering in the back of your mind for a while now. You know what I'm talking about. Maybe no one but you knows. Maybe your friends don't know because you're too embarrassed to tell them. Maybe your colleagues don't know because you're worried about professional jealousy. Maybe even your family doesn't know. But you know. And the fact that you know means you have to act. Will people doubt you? Of course they will, but who cares? I've come to a place in my life where I realize that living a full life is not about how many successes you've had. It's about how many regrets you've eliminated through the breadth of experiences that you're able to create for yourself. You know what to do. You know what you want to do. You know what you need to do. The time is now. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. Joining me today for the interview is Dr. Tina Bogren. Uh, Tina is a fierce advocate for educators, particularly for their well-being. She is an author of numerous books centered around her passion areas of quality instruction, coaching, mentoring, and wellness. Tina is also a co-director of Solution Tree's Wellness Solutions for Educators and is also the host of the weekly podcast, Self-Care for Educators with Dr. Tina Bogren. And that is exactly why I've invited Tina here today. So Tina, welcome to the podcast. Ah, oh, thank you. I am so, so grateful to be here. Thank you. Yeah, glad to have you here. Uh, certainly great to meet you. You and I run in the same circles, but uh, we have not met one another before. And I you know, always look forward to having you on the podcast and excited for our conversation because obviously, you know, teacher wellness and self-care 
uh, is an important topic and one that certainly acutely has become even more important. So the you know you know as we know the intensity uh, of the pandemic and the relentless stress that educators have been under has has brought self care for educators to the forefront. Right, it's it's yeah. always been there, yeah. but it's something now that it's been really important. Uh, yeah. But so many educators, Tina, feel immediately guilty uh, when yes. they focus on themselves and not their students. So, what do you do or what do you say to educators? to get them out of that mindset, that idea that they feel guilty about focusing on themselves. Right. I know the minute you said it, my heart was like, ah, oh, I know. It's um, there a couple really interesting things along those lines. So last year there was research, 2020 research that came out and said that the two most stressful occupations are nurses and teachers. And it makes perfect sense. We're the caregivers, right? And and we signed up for this profession in order to do that, to take care of everyone else. And so we get to a place where we're kind of the last person on the to-do list. And so really, for me, really the core of self-care is shifting that exact mindset of recognizing that by caring for ourselves, we are actually caring for our students. And that's a hard shift, I know. Oh, there's a feeling of, yeah, I'll take care of myself once I've checked in and made sure that everyone else is okay. Not just my students, but my family, like my colleagues, all of it. And the idea, the true idea of self-care is the notion that, and I know it's become trite now, but it just, it's so perfect. The airline announcement of securing your own oxygen mask before you assist others is the absolute truth. My, my core value and the hill that I die on is the belief that if we care, if we take exquisite care of the adults in the building, meaning that adults are given permission to take care of themselves, then we will in turn take exquisite care of our students, that, that they go together. One does not mean that we are neglecting the other. So that shift of mindset, it's a hard one. But I think finally, we're starting to see we just cannot continue at the pace that we have and expect it to be okay. It, it feels a little bit like a short-term, long-term case where, you know, yeah. we might think in the short term if we focus on our students, but long-term, we're going to pay a price for that versus the idea if in the short-term we look after ourselves, we will be better for our students in long-term. Is that is that a is that yeah. the right way to look at that? Yeah, absolutely. I could not agree more. And there's, there's a conversation that I've been having with educators lately is, you know, especially people that have their own children or nieces, their their kids in their lives, their own kids that they that they send off to school. And if we were to sit down and paint a portrait of that ultimate teacher that we want to send our own children to, you know, we list that they are excited and they're energized and they love their job and they're inspired and on and on and on. And then if we think about, okay, let's compare how are we feeling right now? And we are totally depleted and worn out and exhausted. Like what we want for our own children, we're not allowing ourselves to give to students like that, that piece of it. So absolutely recognizing that in order to take care of our students, that taking care of ourselves, it is, I love that. I hadn't thought about it in the term of like short-term, long-term, but that makes perfect sense to me. Yes. Yeah. It feels like we just, we're, we're going to burn out. We're not going to be there for yeah. our students and long-term. That's really what it, what it is because, you know, we know that being an educator, teacher, administrator, district level is a demanding job and it, and it comes with a lot of stress and pressure. So 
when I feel stress and pressure, of course, as an educator, I, I need to be able to recognize the difference between the regular stress and pressure of the job and the need to give more attention to self-care. So what are some signs that educators might recognize in themselves that let them know that this is not just regular stress and pressure of the job. This is actually, I'm starting to recognize that, that I need self-care. So what are some yeah. of those signs that educators can look for? Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, stress, stress itself is not a bad thing, right? We, that's how we get things done. Right. It's the prolonged stress that's really doing a number. And so those signs that, that you mentioned, I think they're unique for everyone. And it's yeah. actually, it's a conversation that I have in PD because it starts to be kind of funny of like, when do you know for yourself, like things have gone off the rails? So a tiny one for me, um, <laughs> when I start ordering Diet Coke, okay, because this is something that I have, I've, I've, I have just slowly but surely gotten soda pop wherever you live <laughs> out of my diet, um, mainly because I've made a commitment to drink the stupid water, I've been drinking the water. So I, when I, so just yesterday, this is funny at the airport, I ordered a diet Coke and I was like, oh boy, Tina, you are, you're tired. You are, you are letting things slip. So there's these certain tells that we know, and, okay. and that's the small little things, but then that continues down the road. Then we start seeing kind of the universal signs of burnout where we are not excited to get up and go to the job where we're pretty negative, where really we just were mad we're angry. We don't feel that passion. The, the whole world is out to get us. Like, And when we start to then detach from the job too, that again, we're not the kind of numb emotions. Those are all signs of that burnout, compassion fatigue. The stress has gotten to be too much. And so when we, we have to be on the lookout for those, because when we recognize them, we have to do something about it. And to me, that's the hardest part because when we've reached that place, that kind of burnout, it might be many people are familiar with Ellen Moore's dip chart, as I call it, which is that, yeah. that chart that represents the phases of the school year. She created that chart thinking about new teachers. I would, I, my argument is that we all go through those and we hit usually around this exact time of year where we start to move from survival into disillusionment. And the hardest part of that is when we're there, we don't feel like taking care of ourselves, like because we feel terrible. So the ah, that that recognition of number one, recognizing where we are and knowing we're not alone is huge and saying, OK, what teeny tiny little thing can I do to help myself? Because I am convinced I have watched it for myself. I've watched it with teachers that I work with administrators, if we commit to doing just one small little thing, those small things actually add up. And if we start to feel better, then we start to kind of show up differently and we get on a roll. So it's the, oh, that stress is stress. Stress on its own is okay. It's that prolonged stress that is dangerous. Right. It seems like whenever, you know, having that level of recognition about when I'm breaking habits or stepping outside yeah. of what my norms are, you, yeah. for, for you, it's Diet Coke, for others, <laughs> it might be a cheeseburger. Who knows Absolutely. what it might be, right? I could throw yeah. some chicken McNuggets in there. Yes. There you go, yeah. <laughs> couple extra pints at the airport who knows Absolutely. right uh, this is how yep. how how we break those habits yeah. right and, yeah. and 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 being aware of that and yes. recognizing those signs in ourselves that we are you know going sideways but often we don't 
see that initially, right? We just right. do things sort of slip back into habit. So yeah. uh, that's a that's an interesting thing, and just trying to see ourselves almost as a a third party, like to be yes. ob- observing ourselves, sort of an action. Now, look, look. So I know you can't give an exhaustive list of all the things we can do to look after ourselves, because as you say, you know, the list would be long, and everybody is. Um, you know, personalized. Everybody's yeah. idiosyncrasies are personal. One size never fits all. Now, having said that, uh, are there some fairly universal strategies that we can employ to proactively keep our lives in balance? You know, physically, mentally, emotionally, even spiritually. What What are some approaches to self care that you have seen be quite effective for a number of educators or a number of people? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Great question. I know. I wish I could be like, yes, here are the five things. And if we just do these and what I have learned having, I'm a, I'm a research nerd about this, having studied this for years now, the most frustrating part is there are no universal strategies. I mean, there are, I'll talk about them, but it's the idea that really different strategies work for different people, which, which we all know that feeling. It's so frustrating. Someone, a partner, a best friend will, will try something, do something, and it works for them. And we are like, yes, I'm going to do that. And it doesn't work for us. And then we think there's something wrong with us and it's not, we're all just wired so differently. Some of us are morning people. Some of us are night owls. Some, I mean, there's just so many factors. What, what the approach that I, I really, I always say what's universal is starting with our most basic level needs. You can think of this as, as the, the core level of Maslow's hierarchy, which is our physiological needs. Tim Canold and I, in our educator wellness framework, talk about that as just our physical wellness. And we say that's the starting place because, and, and we would break that down into our diet, our movement, and our sleep and rest, those core areas. And the reason why I say to start there, and those are universal, is because <laughs> in times of stress or crisis or trauma, those are what's typically impacted first and the hardest, even if we have good habits built around those. Mm-hmm. And so when we are particularly stressed or we feel like we're in that disillusionment phase, of the time you can trace it back to recognize that something's kind of gotten out of whack in diet or exercise or sleep, which is such a common theme. So I always say to kind of go back to basics. I I think of this as we have to treat ourselves like puppies. Like if we think about what does a puppy need, right? A puppy needs water and sleep and a walk and food and love and rest, right? If we go back and treat ourselves like puppies in the most kind way, again, then we start to feel better. So that I always say starting with physical wellness, because once we feel better, then it's easier to move into some of these other areas, what we would call like our our mental wellness, our emotional wellness, our social wellness. But those are really hard to tackle if we don't, if we're just exhausted. If we are not, if we are just consuming only Diet Coke and Chicken McNuggets, right? So those pieces, once we get those really solid, then it's easier to start start delving into the other areas as well. When you said um, uh, give you know, treat, treat ourselves like puppies. It reminds, you know, maybe we need a tea towel to play tug of war with in the kitchen for, for seven hours, right? Yeah, no. Um, and, and the other, the other piece it makes me think of, as you were talking, I, you, you kept using the word feeling and, and it reminded me that, you know, maybe, maybe it's not on what we do, but it's seeking the feeling, right? What makes us feel happy? What makes us feel 
satisfied, what makes us feel strong, what makes us feel well in all of that. So I, I think there's, that's a, I don't know. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Do you agree that, you know, see, seeking the feeling versus Absolutely. seeking the thing? Absolutely. Yeah. I love the question. I think this comes originally from um, Danielle Laporte. It's just as simple of idea of how do I want to feel today rather than what do I want to get done today? Right, and right. that shift, I love that. How do I want to feel today can yeah. really, really make that change. Along those lines, something that that I've been playing with and the kind of self-care squad, um, as I love to call them, is this idea of how can I live my best life today? Right. We have this hashtag LYBL, live your best life. And what I mm -hmm. love is to watch educators take that and run with it. And it's kind of like we're taking back that that hashtag because typically if you just do a, a Google search and you look for a hashtag LYBL, you see all these pictures of like vacation and mm -hmm. umbrella drinks. And I'm here for all of that. But that <laughs> is so few and far between. That's a very different kind of self-care. That we can't rely on those, you know, twice a year vacations. Instead, right. if we think about how we want to feel, it's it's along those same lines. How can I live my best life today? Even in this really hard day, this Monday with back-to-back -back meetings and demands, what can I do today to feel like at least for a moment of it, maybe not the entire day, that I have a moment of living my best life? Like what right. can that look like today? And I have seen so many amazing examples that it is just, I'm committing to, I'm going to actually eat lunch today. I yeah. am, I'm going to go for a walk during my plan time. Like I'm going to take a little break. I'm going to, you know, all those small, I'm going to put on my amazing playlist on the way home <laughs> and have a dance party in my car. Like those tiny little moments help us feel better. And yeah. that shift is, is small, but mighty. Yeah, I, I'm sure I've certainly been a big believer of that. And listeners, you've heard me talk about that a little bit on the podcast about how our feelings are a window, uh, there are or even a mirror, they're a reflection of what we've been predominantly thinking and predominantly doing our feelings really do tell us uh, whether our habits are on or off track. Yeah. And of course, we know that new teachers, you know, struggle to maintain themselves in the position uh, for long, we have we see teachers within the first five years leaving the profession and knowing how important self care is, and knowing that stress in education is unavoidable. When we think about new teachers, what what advice would you have for those beginning this career? Uh, we probably have several new teachers or early in the career teachers listening to the podcast. So, what advice do you have for them to proactively incorporate self care into their daily or their weekly routines? I think we've talked yeah. a little bit about it, but just what specifically would you say yeah. to new teachers? Yes. Oh, my heart. So first of all, new teachers, we love you. We need you. Please stay. <laughs> right? Like, right. yes, you're spot on. I mean, and we, you know, 50, we lose 50% of new teachers within the first five years. There's lots of data that says we lose 40 to 50% within the first seven years. And that's all pre-pandemic data. We won't know the ramifications of this for a while. So it worries me. Yeah. So the the way that I tackle this, so I actually wrote a book specifically on this. The book is called The Beginning Teacher's Field Guide, where I took Ellen Moore's phases. And what I did is I matched instructional strategies and self-care strategies to the phases. Now, this is true for everyone, but my lens around new teachers, the, you know, the, the advice of write the book that you wish you had. So that was the right. book I wish I would have had as a new teacher. I didn't really think about self-care at all. Like many of us, we were yeah. 
I was spinning my wheels. I was spending inordinate amount of time at work. I'm not sure I was actually getting work done, but I was just sitting there trying to figure out what to do. Mm-hmm. And so what I did is, is I broke down, for example, in the anticipation phase, which is the very beginning of the school year, the self-care strategies that I start with are get really clear on your habits around diet, exercise, and sleep. Get some solid habits in place. Then when we start to move into those harder phases, survival, disillusionment, it's strategies, teeny tiny little things, for example, of establishing a gratitude practice. Because again, if we can find that feeling of gratitude when things are really hard, that can help us stay connected to our why. And I give examples of either writing it down, taking a gratitude photo, sharing gratitude out loud. Altruism is another one. We know from the research, um, positive psychology research tells us that the fastest way to feel better is to do something nice for someone else. And reminding, to, of course, we have an altruistic job. So mm-hmm. t- connecting to that and then making, maybe we do a 30-day challenge where we commit to doing one act of kindness every single day. Um, and another another strategy around survival and disillusionment is humor. And I chose that one because we know humor makes us feel better. Humor makes us connected to others. And it's something that when we're in the hard phases, we forget. Nothing is funny when everything is hard. So if we purposely seek it out. So this is permission to go home and watch an episode of Ted Lasso or Shit Creek or like to find the humor. Because again, that feeling when we feel better, it just kind of... (laughs) It shakes off some of the hard stuff, and then we just kind of have a fresh start, which I love. You got to find either the humor or the ridiculousness in what you're experiencing at some point, right? Uh, Again, I I could not agree more about the concept of gratitude because I just, you cannot think uh, in a positive way around gratitude and feel negative. You just, your your thoughts will produce those feelings. And if you focus yourself, I'm a, again, I'm a big advocate of that, of, of, thinking about gratitude because it, again, as, as maybe as routine as it might feel for some and maybe a little bit manufactured, it shifts the way you think and the way you think produces how you feel. And that feeling is, uh, is, is what is going, what you're going to carry into the rest of your day for sure. And it makes, you know, the new teachers, uh, Tina, it also makes me think about, I want to talk about leaders now. Uh, It makes me think that, that, that leaders in particular need to pay close attention to the, the wellness of new teachers, but let, let's sort of finish up here with leaders uh, and specifically school principals. When we think about principals sort of working with teachers on a daily basis, how do school leaders cultivate a culture of self-care within their schools and, and what can they do maybe specifically for new teachers, but generally for everyone to help cultivate that culture of self-care in their schools? Yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm worried sick about our leaders. Um, oh my goodness. I mean, it's like, Everyone, don't get me wrong, but three years of of holding this. So absolutely thinking about creating this culture with their staff. And I'm going to argue, argue is probably not the right word. I'm going to, I'm going to make a bold claim that it starts with them modeling this themselves. I see. So talk about caregivers. I see, and I mean this with my, with my whole, this is not a judgment. I see so many leaders wanting to provide the gift of a, of a culture and climate of self-care for their staff, but they're not doing it themselves. And we know we have to walk our talk, right? Mm-hmm. That, that notion of integrity is if we want our staff to take care of ourselves, it starts with us taking care of ourselves. So for leaders, I, I would say it's the same things, getting back to basics, taking care of yourself. And once you do that, 
then you're then you're modeling that it is okay for staff to do that as well. Right. And um, really, this goes down to this is exactly the vision that Tim Tim Canald and I, as co-directors of the Wellness Solutions for Educators, in our book Educator Wellness, really had this vision of thinking about these four dimensions of self-care that we can we can take a staff through. And it, it it's all lined up that a leader, we're trying to take things off the plate of a leader. A leader could use this to guide their staff through it, where we think about physical wellness, mental, emotional, and social. Within each of those areas, we've got three specific routines to think about. So there's there's lots of directions to go in, but we have a research-affirmed framework that really gives us a vision for that. So there's lots of resources out there, but the core piece I would say for leaders in particular is to take care of yourselves first and foremost. I know, I mean, they are hanging on by a string. We know attrition rates are even greater for leaders than they are for new teachers. And again, I'm worried about what we're going to find as as we move through, through this pandemic too. Yeah. Yeah, you know, as you're responding there, I, I I can't help but think about my own experience in my career and thinking about superintendents and principals and teachers and, yeah. and trying to send the message of self-care, but then you being at the school and teachers driving past the school on a Sunday morning or a Sunday afternoon or Saturday and seeing your vehicle there, or worse, you know, teachers receiving emails from you on a Saturday yes. afternoon yes. or three three in the morning yep. on a Monday. And that that message of of the fact that you're supposed to always be at work, I think superintendents can inadvertently or maybe intentionally send that message to principals yep. that, hey, if you're not at work all weekend, you're not really doing your job. And and principals can send that same message uh, to teachers to say, you know, I, I'm at the school seven days a week, uh, you know, working. And that just, I just never bought into that. I never was impressed by that. I, I actually thought, Tina, that if you had to spend all weekend at the school, you were wildly inefficient with your minutes during the yeah. week. I just thought, like, what are you doing? So how, is it just a, a matter of just saying, stop sending three in the morning emails? Or is there other things that we can do to try to stop this kind of frenzy around around the, the relentlessness of the job? What, what, there is. What are us, yeah. Well, and I think it's such an interesting, I've been having this conversation with people lately. I think it's part of the nature of education too, is this kind of martyrness of yeah. their, <laughs> I give this funny example, but it, it's kind of true. Like, you know, teachers will be talking and one teacher will say, I was at work till five o'clock last night. And teacher B yeah. says, well, I was at work till seven. And then someone else says, well, I was at work till nine. Oh, yeah. And it just, we like outdo each other. And I, I wish know. we could change it and be like, no, I left work at four o'clock. Yay. You know, that celebration of really turning. I think we've just created this culture. And it stems back to, this is a conversation I had with Anthony Muhammad years ago. We got to kind of laughing about, we were talking about great movies, educator inspirational movies. And we kind of went down the line and it got to be funny that the educator movies really are, <laughs> they're horrifying. So yeah. we were talking about the movie uh, Freedom Writers. I love that movie. I was an English teacher. But then we started breaking that down and we were like, oh, you know, in the end of that, she actually quits her job and gets divorced. And we have held that movie up, right? That this mm -hmm. expectation that we give everything. And if not, we're not a good teacher. Right. So part of what we have to, this gets to kind of the systemic, beyond the band-aid drink more water approach of let's change our culture and climate to not hold that up as that's winning that's not winning and figuring out 
again, what works for each of us. So something that I talk about in workshops, again, the hard part is there's no universal way, but figuring out what works for you, doing some action research, and then holding true to that. So some people, when I was in the classroom, I stayed on Wednesdays. Wednesdays was my late day and I just Uh, I got everything done, but I walked away the other days, which was hard because there's that look. We give each other the look. Oh, must be nice to leave at three o'clock, right? So to stop that and to know everyone's on their own rhythm and pattern. Some people like to work on the weekend. Some people do not. And that's okay. Yeah. I think as if we have to be careful, we're not doing the 24-7, but being really transparent. For example, my email, I don't know if you caught it, the the underneath my email, the signature, I say, my work hours may not be your work hours. So please don't feel obligated to respond to this outside of work hours because I, you and I, we have weird work hours because, because of our lives. Right. And so I, I try to be really careful about when I send emails and, and part of it is, is helping. I've had workshops with leaders where we just learn how to schedule emails. So maybe you feel better sending the email on Saturday but we talk about how teachers receive that. So every email program has a way where you can delay sending it, send it on Monday, right? Or send a message to your staff that just because I'm sending it, I don't expect you to respond. But I think you're so right that we've done this, this culture Mm -hmm. in our field where we, it, it, it taps into that very first question of feeling guilty if we are not 24 seven, you know, working. And that, that underlying piece really speaks to, and again, this will be leadership changing that culture and climate. And I, none of this means that we are doing less for our students at all. I don't mean like in the name of self-care, I'm not doing any work. It, it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way, but there we can absolutely find find a different rhythm, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, you have to pick your spots when it's report yeah. card time or you have parent-teacher yeah. evenings or things like that. You're going to work long hours yep. and that's the way it is. But I think you're absolutely right about this. This I don't know what it is, is this martyrdom slash competition yeah. that folks have about how late they stayed or how yeah. how many hours or or the students they have to teach versus, oh, yeah. and, and that, that phrase that you used earlier, I have to tell you, is probably one of my top three pet peeves when people say must be nice the 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 oh, the dismissiveness my skin I, crawls oh, i know mine too i i can't yep. stand that i think you know yeah it is nice it is nice yeah. that i'm leaving because you know what i maybe i was a little more efficient with my time and look I, I i don't mean to be dismissive of that but i just think that sometimes the language we use we have to be yes. careful about yep. the yep. message we're sending and then yep. principals need to be mindful of what they give their attention to and the idea that teachers are finding balance and not at work all evening Look, there are times, you know, you're a new teacher, you do work longer yep. hours, you're trying to yep. figure out the profession, but but in some cases we we can inadvertently send this message yeah. and, and teachers feel a lot of pressure and superintendents yeah. do the same thing, right? Yep. What superintendents yep. send messages about principals will pay attention to and what principals send messages about uh, teachers will pay attention to. So, yep. and and one more thing, the draft folder in most email programs is not a 2021 invention. That's been right. around for a while. So yes. uh, the idea that we would spend a two-day workshop teaching folks how to use the draft folder uh, in their right? email programs. Yeah. Yes. So, um, no, Tina, this, is, uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. And I think that you are uh, just 
your expertise could not be more relevant uh, given the stresses of the pandemic. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's always been relevant, but but given right. what's happened over the last uh, 18 to 20 months, for sure. So I've got two questions. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. I've got, uh, <laughs> I, I've, got, I've got two questions left for you. And these are questions, as you know, that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. And here's the first one. And you can take this in any direction you want to. Uh, but educationally speaking, um, what keeps you up at night? Yeah. Oh, this one's so easy. I, I think of it all the time. I'm worried. I'm worried sick about the adults in the building. Yeah. Um, I'm not worried about, for the most part, I'm not worried about a, a, them taking care of their students. I'm worried about them. It, it circles back to, um, I've worked for Dr. Robert Marzano for years and years and years. And and a lot of his research um, and work, he, he constantly goes back to the research to remind us that the absolute most direct correlation to student achievement is the teacher in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And what is, I've, I've always thought about that in thinking about instructional strategies. And the last few years, a different part of that sentence kind of lit up. It's the teacher, the human being. Yeah. And that idea of we can take amazing strategies with high effect sizes and all the fancy stuff that that has a pretty good chance of being successful. But if the person providing that strategy is totally depleted, worn out, burned out, exhausted, strategy is never going to have the impact uh, that we wanted to have on students. So what keeps me up at night is, is, and the one we're going to lose, we're going to lose the ones that are making the biggest difference. And we just, we can't afford to lose them. Right. Right. I don't always know what folks are going to say when they when I ask them that question, but I had a feeling I knew what <laughs> you were going to say when I asked them that question. Okay, so last last question, as you know, is about success and happiness. Uh, I ask everyone who comes on the podcast uh, since day one about what their feelings are about the definition of success and happiness. So the question, of course, is if a random person stopped you on the street and just asked you, what's your definition of success? How would you answer them? Yeah. Okay. You would think that I would have an answer. I listen to your podcast. I hear people's responses. I've thought about this and I feel like, I feel like it's a, it's kind of like a, a moving, a moving answer for me. So today, what I'm going to say, success is when you can fall asleep at night and feel like you made a difference. Yeah. And it can be teeny tiny. Maybe you made a difference to the stranger in the parking lot that you let take the take the spot. Maybe you, maybe it was that you got to attend your child's soccer game. You got to be there. Maybe it's something in the classroom. But that that to me, it's that connection back to the top of Maslow's hierarchy when we feel that we are connected to something outside of ourselves. To me, that feels like success these days. Yeah. I think, you know, so many folks talk about making a difference. And I think this is, you know, a lot of ways what our profession uh, is about is making a difference, of course, uh, with one another, but of course, primarily with the students uh, that we serve on a daily basis. Listeners, uh, you definitely should follow Tina uh, on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow Tina. Her handle is at THBogren. That's T-H-B-O-O-G-R-E-N. You can uh, hook up with the Self-Care for Educators page on Facebook and certainly search Tina uh, on LinkedIn as well. And I certainly have to recommend uh, Tina's podcast, the Self-Care for Educators podcast. You really should subscribe to that. Short, quick episodes uh, that are incredibly helpful. And you can find that also on the website, uh, www.selfcareforeducators.com. 
Tina'sPodcast.com. Uh, I listened to Tina's podcast, uh, really helpful tips. And uh, certainly, Tina, you've brought a lot of the energy you put into the podcast to our uh, our inter- interview today. And, and I certainly appreciate that. So I'll put links in the show notes. Uh, just go there and, and everyone uh, who's listening can can connect with you in whatever realm uh, they would like to. So yeah. uh, Tina, uh, two things. Thanks so much for joining me today. And I want to just say on behalf of all educators, um, thank you for, for all you do in service of, of our profession and helping support educators all around the world. Oh, my heart. Thank you. Thank you. That means the world to me. Thank you. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to address a question that came up a few times this week in some of the trainings I was facilitating. And the question was this, Tom, should we intentionally use a variety of assessment methods? Now, the answer to that question is both yes and no. First, let's make a very important distinction between assessment methods and formats. There really are only two assessment methods. Students either choose an answer or they create one. There is either selecting a response or they are constructing a response. Now, the third method that many of you would be familiar with would be called performance assessment. And that really is technically a subsidiary of constructed response. When your constructed response attempts to emulate the authentic context within which the learning is meant to be applied, then you have a performance assessment. So often performance assessments need to be seen or heard to be assessed as the demonstration of learning can often be an immersive experience. Not always, of course, but often. So now once we're inside the method, selected response could have a number of different formats, right? So it could be multiple choice, could be matching, could be true, false, and each of those could be in a more traditional format, right, on paper, or in other ways, right? Could be Because four corners, a four corners activity, for example, is a version of multiple choice. Now constructed response is the method What's the format? Well, the format and constructed response can be everything from fill in the blank. As long as you haven't provided a word list, then it would be selected response. But if you, it's fill in the blank, all the way to a project or a research paper or a scientific analysis or a debate or a presentation of inquiry findings and so on. That's all constructed response. And again, if any of those are purposefully designed to replicate or immerse students in an authentic experience that mirrors what someone in that field or discipline would do, then you have a performance assessment. So here's why the answer is both yes and no. We don't vary assessment methods for the purpose of varying assessment methods because assessment methods aren't interchangeable, remember. Your standards or your learning goals dictate the method as it's directly connected to the cognitive complexity and the depth of thinking required by the standards. So when you see verbs, for example, in your standards that are like describe or create or analyze or critique or apply, Those are, of course, more conducive to constructed response. If you see verbs like identify, choose, label, select, find, those are, of course, more conducive to selected response. And the verbs do help us with the identification of the assessment method. Remember, we have to look past the verb to find the depth of thinking to make sure our assessments are are well-crafted, but we begin with that verb to identify the cognitive complexity so we at least know the method. So this is really important. Remember, Every assessment method is valid, but every assessment method has a limitation. My frustration comes when some just simply reject multiple choice because it mirrors the method, for example, that standardized tests use. Having students construct responses for low-level learning or low-level tasks or foundational knowledge can be an extremely inefficient use of your time. The question with assessment is always this, 
what's the most effective and efficient manner with which to gather the information I'm seeking? Utilize lengthy responses when you actually need a thorough explanation or you need evidence of student thinking. Length is not a measure of effectiveness. You need an adequate sample to accurately assess, but it need not be artificially long. Now, once inside the appropriate assessment method, then you have the freedom to choose the format and choose you should. Not only is there a variety of formats within each method, variety should be encouraged for a couple of reasons. First, some formats may be a disadvantage to some students. You know, if, if a student struggles with written output, either because of a, you know, a challenge with processing between thought and keyboard or paper, or they struggle with written output simply because of fatigue, that will disadvantage some students if we're always going to that extended written response or typed response. Now, on second, the variety of assessment formats completes the picture and shows a true understanding of where the learner is because some formats are also advantageous to some students. And so a variety of demonstration forces a true picture of depth and breadth of where that student is in their learning. So using a variety of assessment formats doesn't always mean a singular rotation of formats whereby this time all of the students perform through written or typed output and then next time all of the students will do a presentation. If a teacher is utilizing constructed response, there is no reason that students on a single demonstration couldn't use a variety of formats. I mean, unless the standard or the learning goal dictates the assessment format, you know, for example, writing standards do that, then there is complete freedom to choose the format once the appropriate method has been determined. We can, and, and probably should, eventually have the students actively involved in the choice of how they want to present their learning. How do you want to show me what you know? How do you want to show me what you understand? How do you want to show me what you can do? Those are the questions we want to start asking our students. So as they answer you, you'll be able to guide them to a more appropriate method and format right? So that the learning they present is an accurate portrayal of proficiency, but they had real authentic agency in choosing how they're going to show you what they know. This goes a long way to creating more opportunities in your class for inclusion, for equity, and of course, to develop student agency. Even when the method or the format is prescribed, right, as in the writing standards, we still have the opportunity to vary the type or style of writing. Again, where it's authentically possible. Sometimes we get too hung up on formality. Remember, evidence is evidence. Assessment need not be this epic event. Um, and, and then we're so hung up on being formal. Uh, you know, listeners, you'll recall, for those of you who listened last April in my conversation with my friend Leanne Young, we talked about assessment in, in the UDL context. And she reminded us that formality is not akin to validity, that making a valid interpretation of the evidence does not depend on how formal the gathering of the evidence was in the first place. This also has an impact on summative judgments because your grades are only as accurate as the assessments they're based on. So we have to choose the right method. Because when what and how are aligned, when how I assess is the right fit for what I'm looking for, then we increase the likelihood that the assessment evidence provides an accurate view of achievement. So again, the answer to the question, should we vary our assessments, is both yes and no. It's emphatically no when it comes to selecting the method, but then it's a capital yes to the variation of formats, both collectively within your class, 
but also within one demonstration of learning. Remember, regardless of the variety of assessment formats employed, you will only need to establish a single set of criteria because the variation in formats all leads to the same learning. And I've talked many times on this podcast about the importance and effectiveness of task-neutral but learning-rich rubrics or criteria because what the students do is simply a means to an end. Learning is the end, and that's what we should be assessing, right? So we ask ourselves these three questions. What is the learning? That's when we identify what the standards are, what the learning goal is. The second question would be, what does quality look like? That's where you build your criteria. You build your criteria from the standards. And the criteria should describe quality, not prescribe output. So you're not telling them what to do. What you're saying is, these are the different gradations of quality. And then the third question is, what can they do to reveal that learning, right? That can and should vary. So what is the learning? What does quality look like? Now, what am I going to make the students do to reveal that level of understanding? So that's the order with which we think about this. So actively seek as wide a variation in assessments as possible where it's applicable. And it's usually applicable most times. It will either be with the format itself, you know, either if you're talking, for example, constructed response, you can have variations written or oral responses, or even within the format, right? So if it's writing, we have a chance to vary the style of writing where they could do different styles of writing. And again, this has to be manageable for you. I'm not suggesting that you overwhelm yourself with this, but you know, so think about that cliche, think big, start small. This is where we can start to incorporate some of these practices into our classroom. The variation in assessment formats goes a long way to removing assessment format itself as a negative influence on how accurate our interpretation of the evidence is. That's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter for updates. That handle is at Tom Shimmer Pod. You can follow me as well on Twitter. That's at Tom Shimmer. Shimmer Education on Facebook, at Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram, and Tom Shimmer Podcast on YouTube. Also, please email your questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions you have, TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. Next week, my guest will be Pav Wander. Pav is a grade seven, eight teacher from the greater Toronto area. And she's also the co-host of the Staff Room podcast. And our focus will be on a number of different topics, but primarily we're going to focus on teacher voice because I know that's something Pav has been acutely paying attention to. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. Even just a five-star review there goes a long way into helping grow the listening audience. And if you like the podcast, please feel free to spread the word about the podcast to your friends and colleagues or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.